Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Capital's Art of War. All of our music is by jazz pianist and composer Andrew Hill. Our opening song is Land of Nod from the 1963 debut album Black Fire. In the book of Genesis, in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh rejects the grain offering of the farmer, Cain, while accepting the flesh offering of his brother, the shepherd, Abel. Cain, wounded by this rejection, murders his brother. The consequence is banishment to the land of Nod, which appears to be more a state of being than an actual place, Nod being the Hebrew root of the verb to wander. Cain becomes a fugitive. It seems fair to suggest that this story, in which Cain becomes humanity twice removed from Eden, is a central metaphor of our sorrows, centered in the logic of our capability to sustain life. What we eat, how food is gathered or grown or husbanded, is said to be how we settle into communities, how we become families and tribes, and further, how cities bloom. Without concentrations of grain, easy access to a food supply, there can be no metropolis. We might say that organizing into cities is the fruit of rejection. We are the fruit of rootlessness. It's that incessant wandering, our current land of Nod, that we confront today in examining sustenance unmoored from place by technology and capital markets. The supply chains and the logistics that make it possible for South Koreans to buy California rice more cheaply than they can provide it for themselves out of their own fields. Logistics, the management of the flow of things between the point of origin and the point of consumption, has its origins in military campaigns. That fact is all too relevant when we seek to understand the process of globalization. This so-called war is always fought through and against workers, minimizing their value as labor and as people, as a cost to eliminate. But logistics, especially since the introduction of shipping containers, has brought forth the planetary factory, now a totality, restricting our ability to even imagine another way of life. Joining us today to consider the state of things detached from the land we stand upon is Jasper Burns. Burns is a poet and Marxist theorist who was integrally involved in Occupy Oakland. His essay, Logistics, Counter-Logistics, and the Communist Prospect is deeply informed by that experience. He's author of The Work of Art in the Age of Deindustrialization, published by Stanford last year, and together with Juliana Spar and Joshua Clover, he edits Commune Editions. We begin with the lessons of Occupy on disruption and blockade as tactics against the logistics of capitalism. How did how did anarchism and communism come into your life, or you know how did it happen that it made sense to you as a a political strategy or a way to to organize yourself? Hmm. Well, I think like a lot of people, I you know I just grew increasingly disenchanted with uh, mainstream politics um, and with kind of representational politics and the various. Um, you know, political parties that existed. Um, and I wanted to 
engage in things that that felt meaningful um mm. and you know these traditions with their kind of emphasis on direct action um and self-organization and mutual aid they made a lot of sense to me um because you could see kind of immediate effects mm-hmm. um and you know i became increasingly convinced and i still believe this that um you know there really is no hope for humanity if i can use such a grand phrase um outside of a revolution you know i think that um it's become clear to me that that capitalism and I think um, class society more broadly is just immensely destructive. You know, it's destroying the planet. Um, it's driving more and more people into into misery. And I think it's just going to get worse over the course of the 21st century. And so, you know, I don't know if it's likely or possible. Um, I hope that there's a possibility. I think there is a possibility, but I don't know how how large of a possibility there is. Um, but you know, I think that a, a revolution could happen, and I think it's our our best hope for um, you know the kind of future that I think peop- most people really want. Mm-hmm. You know, a you know a, um, a you know world that's free of violence, and you know, in which people have all the things that they need to flourish. Right. Difficult questions because we, as, as you make note many times in the things you've written, there's the, the problem of trying to um, imagine, visualize, think outside of the world you live in. Right. Right. And, and the structures that we have seem uh, impossible to, to not do without in many ways. And they Absolutely. are somewhat impossible sure. to do without. Absolutely. And that's a big part of this, uh, of how we think about these things. Right. You know, how are we going to dismantle we can't. I guess your point, I think, uh, and you, you can certainly make it throughout yourself, uh, that that there does have to be dismantling. The, there does have to be changes in in certain things. So, um, you know, what what do we need to do? There you, there does have to be dismantling, um, and of course, you know, we we live in we're incredibly dependent upon these kind of massive technological systems. Um, and we don't really fully understand how they function, mm-hmm. but we know that we're dependent upon them. You know, we know that there's a, this vast kind of infrastructure, um, and these very complicated supply chains that make it so that there's food in the groceries mm-hmm. and so that we have gas and we can drive our cars and so that like the medicine shows up at the pharmacy, um, that we need and depend upon. It's magic. And, you know, if that stuff stops happening, it's going to be, you know, massive suffering mm-hmm. for us. And we don't want that. Um, and so, you know, and, and so, um, anything that, that, that might seem to interrupt that sort of seems like sawing off the branch on which you're sitting, right? It's a very dangerous proposition. And that's, I think, sort of how, um, capitalism holds us hostage, right? We, 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 you know, we, we, we think it's kind of impossible to imagine, um, this change. Um, but I, but I do think that, 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 um, that there are ways to kind of interrupt um, these systems and and kind of restructure them or replace them with other kinds of things. Um, it's not going to be pretty, <laughs> um, but it's also not going to mean, you know, kind of mass uh, famine and a kind of Mad Max scenario. There is there is a possibility of imagining some sort of window yeah. between those two things, between um, simply accepting the inevitability of this way of doing things with all the violence and implies all the destruction to the planet, um, all of the kind of misery and immiseration for people. And on the other hand, some kind of um, uh, war of all against all where people are just, you know, 
out merely for their own um, self-interest yeah. and you know attacking each other. Yeah, uh, the ideas that we we confront though, as as I think we're going to have to to or the issues we're going to mm-hmm. talk about here, uh, energy in particular, perhaps uh, the food chain, as you said, agriculture, they're all tied together. All these systems right. and how they bring us food, energy, why we get into our cars, all these things are are important issues. Uh, I, and I'll start with uh, just uh, a personal uh, response. My my father's a farmer. His father. Was as a farmer, um, you know, I've, I've I've been through various stages of rebellion myself in many ways, and I'd I'd be like, you know, you're ruining the planet with Monsanto seed, with right. your inputs and outputs, with the nitrogen, the, you know, the uh, right. anhydrous ammonia you put on right. your field. He's like, so. <laughs> But but you know his his response is a personal one. He's like, I can't farm otherwise. Right. Right. I can't do anything. What would you have me do? And he's, right. And he's right. Uh, yes, given the of arrangement course, of, of agriculture right, right now, right. Um, right. you know, of course you have. If you want to be a financially successful farmer, you have to use all of these kinds of modern technologies. Maybe there's a small window for organic in some areas if you're in the right spot. But from what I hear, it's very very difficult right. to succeed as an organic farmer. Yeah. Um, and I think. All farming is incredibly perilous. Mm. Um, one, one of the things that I've learned uh, doing this project on agriculture and revolution um, is that you can, you, can, you, you can argue, and many people do, and I think they're correct, that capitalism, in fact, begins with agriculture, not with factories. Mm-hmm. Um, it begins with a capitalist reorganization of, of, of agriculture and how people farm uh, in England uh, in, in the Middle Ages. Um, but at the same time, farms are very bad capitalist businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard to create um, a predictable uh, setup, right, where you know what you put in is what right. you're going to get out. Because there's all of the all of these unpredictable elements, the weather, nature itself is intractable in some way, mm-hmm. right? It just isn't. You can't make it as run as smoothly as a factory. Right. It's never going to be a robot, <laughs> right. um, and. And so, so most, most farming doesn't really operate in a pure capitalist way. That's why you have to have crop insurance. You have to have the government come in and control the markets. Otherwise, the, the, the price, uh, the, you know, the, the, the price will occasionally go to the floor when there's an overabundance of, of grain. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's actually really impossible to do agriculture in this kind of purely market-based capitalist way because it's just, it's, you know, and, that, and as you know, I mean, if your family are farmers, most people have just been, you know, only 1% of people in the United States work in that field now. Um, and it's just been a, a constant, you know, wave of bankruptcies for 100 years of people being forced out of farming because they just can't, mm-hmm. they can't mm-hmm. make it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's walk into the, the, uh, what brings you to Bloomington or what you're going to talk about here as well, because this, we've already sort of started it there. Um, but there is, um, uh, there are terminologies that you use throughout that I'd like to, to talk about as well or sure. to try to understand. Um, so you start out this paper, which uh, is the belly of revolution. Why don't you talk about that first? Uh, why why you called the paper the belly of revolution? Um, well, I, 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 there, there are a number of things that that phrase brings up for me. Um, the main reason why I call it that is that I want to um, underscore the fact that agriculture is really um, the kind of central issue for um, every revolution that's ever happened in history. Most of, you know, the revolutions that, that, that we can look to, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, 
um, the French Revolution. These were, you know, fundamentally reorganizations of, of agriculture. Um, the rev- if we want to call it a revolution, the transition to, to capitalism was a reorganization of agriculture. And every uh, future revolution, I want to argue, is going to have uh, farming, agriculture, and the food supply at its center. And the reasons for this are pretty obvious, right? If you can't feed everyone, um, if you can't, you know, meet people's uh, fundamental needs um, in some kind of abundance, you won't succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of the, the the reasons that these past revolutions failed, right, was because they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't reorganize agricultural production quickly enough or in the right way. Um, you know, in, in Russia, famously, there was this kind of peasant control over um, the land and over food production. And the peasants, um, who were initially fairly sympathetic to the Bolsheviks and the kind of more industrial working class elements of of the Revolutionary Party, um, they came to distrust them because the armies would come through and, and, and you know, requisition the grain right. and sort of treat them really poorly. So the result was that they, they didn't produce, they hoarded, um, and it created massive shortages and scarcity. And then, the, you know, the Bolsheviks responded by uh, trying to kind of violently expropriate them, right? And it right. was a, a kind of massive, horrible um, event. And so that's, that's, that's an example of how things can go really, really wrong. Mm-hmm. We don't have the same problems, at least, you know, in, in, in most of the developed world. There isn't a, ma- a peasantry. Um, and even in the places where there is something like a peasantry, it's not really the same as it was. It doesn't have the same sort of control over over the land um, because agriculture is, is different all across the world these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the the problem of the problem of the land and the problem of the food of, of food and uh, food supply um, is still going to be you know mm-hmm. really important to kind of any any revolutionary occurrence. And I think it's really important even if you know you don't think revolution is possible or desirable. Uh, so, you know, so I, so I kind of want to bring attention to that, to that fact. Um, and I had made a, a, you know, I'd written previously about logistics and the logistics industry and its con- connection to, you know, contemporary anti-capitalist struggles and any kind of future revolution. Um, and I made an argument there about, um, you know, the impossibility of simply using the technologies that we find in the world, mm-hmm. um, that, it, it, that we were going to have to kind of break with these technological systems um, rather than simply appropriate them and assume that we can use them uh, in the ways that we want to use them. Uh, and in having arguments with people about that that argument, I found that, you know, I needed more specific examples of that kind of thinking. And agriculture seemed to be um, a, a good test case hmm. for trying to explore these ideas. It's time for a break. Here's another from jazz pianist Andrew Hill. This is Tired Trade, another cut from 1963's Black Fire. Stay tuned for more with Jasper Burns on logistics, capital's art of war, when Interchange returns.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today, Capital's Art of War, seeks to unveil the ways supply chains mask the flow of products and hide the labor that makes that flow possible. Our guest, Jasper Burns, instructs us to open our eyes to the hidden world of commodity flows around us. Who are our local producers? And think about how active disruption of those businesses and institutions will affect us. obvious point to say you, you have to feed people yeah. to be successful uh, uh, you know we can easily say you know the reason the, the Black Panthers were moderately successful while they were was because they were able to create a, a community where they fed their people yeah. in a lot of ways this happens right. right you can understand this in 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 trying to understand how to break the back of capital uh, and then still be able to feed people um, yeah. is again not very easy to imagine um again because of size because of the life you're you're living because of the inability to understand those supply mm. chains so this is a a big part of trying to understand uh how to even imagine revolution you know in in, right. in a culture like this it's easy to imagine revolution in cuba mm-hmm. and it's easy almost to imagine in russia if you spend any time thinking about it because mm-hmm. it was a vast landmass mm-hmm. uh that was immensely poor right and it was not so hard you know once there was an industrialization in the right. sense right there were massive of people in factories that spill right. out into the streets. And so those things are kind of easy to conceive. But as you say, capitalism works really hard to kind of negate those possibilities of right. mass movement, right? Uh, and I'm, that's not necessarily talking about agriculture at this point. Um, <laughs> I mean, when you when you say that it's hard to see, there's a couple different things you can mean, right? right. One thing is that you could mean that you just don't, you don't think the possibilities exist. Mm-hmm. Another thing it can mean is that you don't see the possibilities, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I think that one of the things that capitalism does is it impoverishes our our knowledge of what exists around us. Mm-hmm. Most of us don't know anything about these systems that we depend upon. So we say like, oh, yeah, how are you going to feed people? But do we really know what's around us? Do we really know anything about the agricultural capacities that are around us? Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say that, in fact, you know, um, there is a lot of food around. It's just, you know, it's just that the land is being used to produce, you know, things that people don't really need. um, And it's being used to produce things in, in, in ways that are amenable to the um, production of profit, but not necessarily to meeting people's needs. And right. so there is a lot of, you know, agricultural potential. It just needs to be um, reorganized. And that's going to be a massive project. Mm. Certainly, it would mean that many, many more people would have to be involved in food production. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, around here, there's a lot of there's a lot of land, right? right? Sure. And, um, you know, so we don't actually really even know Right. We don't even know its output, right? Mm-hmm. So this, one of the things I'm trying to do in this paper is say, let's investigate these things. Mm-hmm. Let's um, take stock of the capacity around us before we make these assumptions about what is or isn't possible. Um, and, you know, most of us live in these places where we don't even know what they make around us, mm-hmm. right? You know, do you know if you live in some town, do you know what kind of industry there is? Right. You know, what is it that they're, that they're producing? What kind of machine?
machines are they using? What can those machines be used to make? Mm-hmm. Um, where do they get their inputs from? Mm-hmm. You know, these are questions that, and that information is not, no one's, no one's going to go out of their way to give you that right. information. Right. It's privately held information. It's very difficult to collect that. But um, if we're serious about, if we're serious as um, revolutionaries, and we're going to try to gather that information and, and and be able to kind of collect that collect that knowledge and engage in that process of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, and doing that, you know, we can also begin to create our own uh, networks of mutual aid that you know um, provide people with with food. Like a lot of people in you know um, people I've met around here in Bloomington, there's a lot of interesting agricultural projects that they're engaged in mm-hmm. uh, to become self sufficient. Um, to create structures of mutual aid, and that that um, that is the basis for sharing the knowledge about mm-hmm. how to do mm-hmm. these things. Even though if it would have, even though it would have to be scaled up. Mm. Um, so, so, so I think that it maybe we just don't see some of these possibilities. But I do think that there are some legitimate blockages that are going to have to be overcome, and they're not going to be overcome easily. Right. Right. Um, right. you know, like the energy issues that I've, right. that I've talked about. Yeah. And I don't, there's yeah. some things that I don't know, questions I can't answer, mm-hmm. you know? Um, you know, can we get away from um, synthesized nitrogen and mm-hmm. meet everyone's food needs? You, different people say different things. I don't have the scientific mm-hmm. knowledge to be able to do those calculations. Right. I can't really know. I know we could get away from a lot of it, right. but could we ever break from it? Com- could we break from it completely immediately? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, you know, we need, you know, uh, you would you would need to, there to be a kind of team of people with a lot of very specific forms of scientific and engineering knowledge to ask to, yeah. to answer those kinds of questions. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is Capital's Art of War about the logistics of the supply chain, and our guest is Jasper Burns, one of the organizers of Occupy Oakland, a poet and Marxist theorist author of The Work of Art in the Age of Deindustrialization. Trying to understand it as, uh, as something that could be possible, right? To say, um, not just, like for myself, I want there to be that change, but it's hard to understand it uh, when you talk to people about it, mm-hmm. right? So what is your life then like, right? So when we think about the structures in place as they are now and how they kind of block our imaginations. Mm-hmm. You know, we have uh, schools and colleges and work, you know, the work we do, the the work has become, at least in this country for so many of us, uh, at best, I guess, intellectual work, mm-hmm. if, if it can be called that even, mm-hmm. um, where we don't necessarily do anything or produce anything or, you know, that these things just have, as you say, kind of uh, negated your own sense of being in the world, mm-hmm. phys- physical being mm-hmm. in the world. And I think that's a big part of this paper, you you know, mm-hmm. is trying to understand the physicality of the world, the naturalness mm-hmm. of the world, and the relationship between uh, humans and the world. Mm-hmm. And so, I'd, I would like to talk and uh, you know find find our way into that into that conversation, really, because it seems to me that's, I think, what many of us would say is a big part of the problem. How are we physical beings anymore? You know, what will it mean to be physical again? Mm-hmm. Um, how will how hard will it be to mm-hmm. be physical again? Right, and so. Yeah. We're not really physical right. anymore, sure. and that's a big question here. Yeah, um, and 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 you know, I do not want to downplay how hard um, farming is <laughs> and how hard it has been historically mm-hmm. for people. Um, you know, in some ways, if you look back at the history, not just of capitalism, but of um, 
but of most societies on this planet, at least, you know, um, uh, state societies that were largely based upon the production of grain. Mm-hmm. Um, those have been societies in which the majority of the people had to do backbreaking mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. you know, every single day. Um, and grain farming in particular is, is, you know, it's, it's miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, some of the technologies we have now have made it much less backbreaking. Um, and I think that, you know, um, it's not necessarily obviously going to be the same, but you know, there it's, I do not want to downplay how difficult, um, it is. And, you know, and I think that if we imagine some kind of reconstruction of the food system, you know, it would have to attend to, um, you know, the problem of toil. Mm. Um, and no one wants to live in a world where you have to toil all the time. Uh, the people who know about it, know about these things a lot they tell me that you know there are ways of there there are types of food work um that aren't toil that Mm -hmm. are actually quite pleasurable you know it's sort of difference between what we might think of as tending the land Mm -hmm. um and extracting the land right the thing about grains right is you're ripping up the land all the time it's really hard work because you have to tear you have to plow Mm -hmm. right um but the permaculture people and i don't know how you know how extensive these models could actually be in generating enough food you know they focus on um you know kind of lazy agricultural work like just so you're just you know you're letting nature do some of the work for you um and and they claim and have proven to some extent you know that you can really get quite high yields you still would be putting way more labor work people will be spending more time with the land than they do now which they spend right. almost no, no time no as, as a whole society right. right we spend a tiny tiny fraction of our available time right. um and you know but but you i think you could do it without um returning to just backbreaking peasant toil no right. one wants to do that right. Right? right but you know um one of the things that I, that's uh, come up in this project is a sense that we've forgotten this whole horizon of revolution that existed in the 19th century, um, where, you know, pretty much across the political spectrum from kind of people associated with Marx, like Engels and Bebel, um, to anarchists like Kropotkin, who disagreed about all kinds of things, they all kind of thought that that revolutions was going to involve um, what they called the overcoming of the division between town and country, mm-hmm. and that everybody was going to be someone involved in food production and that just that just made sense as a revolution that cities were kind of terrible they thought um and that they were just these places they were these big kind of um vats filled with poison that were poisoning the (laughs) workers and that you know and then in the countryside you had this peasantry that was deprived of all of the kinds of technologies that were being produced in the cities and they were just sort of um you know, uh, uneducated yeah, on yeah, culture and culture. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that what was going to happen was kind of mixture of these things. The best techniques were going to be applied to the, the country. Um, and then the workers were going to get to participate in this food production that was seen as, as pleasant. Bebel mm-hmm. talks about how, um, there's certain kinds of agricultural work, orchard work as being this very horticulture as being this very kind of pleasant, right. um, uh, kind of labor where you're just kind of tending the trees, right. you're pruning, you're plucking, <laughs> all of that is very nice, you know, and you can imagine doing that, you know, five to 10 hours a week. Right. Um, everybody did that. It would be, you know, that, that's, that sounds fine, right? <laughs> right. That's a nice diversion. You, instead sure. of going to the gym, you just do that, right? <laughs> right. Um, so I, you know, that's, that's sort of the vision right. that, that right. I have. Um, you know, and, <laughs> 
And I think that we need to return to this idea of the overcoming of the division between town and country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The left has come to accept that sort of cities are the future of the planet and just, you know, um, and this idea that I think is incorrect is that cities are somehow more efficient. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that that is correct. It's time for another break. This is Chained, another by Andrew Hill recorded in 1967 and unreleased until the 2005 compilation Mosaic Select 16. Next, we look at what might be possible by trusting our neighbors and collective action and turning away from capitalism's domination of the imagination of possible futures. More with Jasper Burns when Interchange returns. Welcome back. This is Interchange. In this segment, our guest, Jasper Burns, tells us a more all-encompassing crisis is looming. No mere financial bubble, born of capitalism's empty waste and climate catastrophe. What stabilities can we conceive? Where can we find new ways of living that deny the rapacious hunger of the profit motive? understand the way that you'd like it to happen or to be able to see it versus the creation of the kind of people we are now, right? The creation of cities, the creation of um, thought, you know, the 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 absolute um, belief that it's the backward, you know, like you go backwards to be right. on the land, you know, right. that it's what's what is science for but to make life right. easier for me right. and not understanding like the loss of so many things in your life, mm-hmm. the loss of personal interactions generally, right? right? When you talk about suburbia, you talk about living in big houses with no one near right. enough to talk to and you don't, even if they're next to you, you don't right. talk to them or right. you nod as you mow the lawn and put on your, your right. chem- chemical pesticides yeah. on your lawn. So so these are the issues that we've, we've stopped. We've stopped kind of wanting to know anyone and been, and now we're afraid of people, right? Like we've created this, the wor- worst environment for like this idea that I want to be next to you farming right. or tending or, or tending the land sure. or uh, uh, working on my orchard. But these are not, these are not new concepts as you point out, right? These are, I mean, this is Thoreau's idea. This is Emerson's idea. And in a lot of ways, how do we, uh, of course, this is the age of Fourier as well, right? So these are, these, yeah. these are the ways in which we think, and again, we've been taught to, 
to think those are wrong too in mm-hmm. some way, especially when we talk about you know communities that were uh, supposed to be um, you know living on the land uh, like Brook Farm, you know things mm-hmm. that fell apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're constantly taught mm-hmm. that those ways are bad, mm-hmm. you know that they're gonna fail, that you're gonna as humans we can't do that anymore, and we never could. We we're always fighting about things, right? Where mm-hmm. we just can't do that. So how do we sort of overcome what is a cultural decision, or at least a, 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 a command decision, yeah. almost, almost by by the economics and 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 our particular politics? Well, I don't I don't have an answer to that oh, question. Come on, Jasper. If I did, you know, if I did, we'd already be there. <laughs> I, right. I I don't. I don't tend to think of these things as a as just as uh as purely a cultural shift mm-hmm. or you know that there's some way that we can kind of re-educate people mm-hmm. or there's mm-hmm. something I can tell people that's going to change their mind. Um if this different state of affairs comes about, it's going to come about because of necessity, right? right? right. It's going to come about because people find themselves in such a situation mm-hmm. in which you know, a kind of a crisis, yeah. some some sort of crisis sure. um, in which they decide they're forced into positions of solidarity with each other right. and they rely on each other and they begin meeting their needs um, through the creation of, of these kinds of communal processes. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way I can envision it coming about. And it's the only way I can envision it um, succeeding because – um, purely voluntaristic efforts like kind of Brook Farm or mm-hmm. these kind of utopian ideals, they fail, right, because they end up being very insular mm-hmm. and they end up being a community of of will alone, right? But if you don't if if you don't have a situation that's that's forced by necessity in some way, it's hard to imagine how you're gonna scale up, right? How you're gonna get not just one commune in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. but a whole kind of network of people. Um, and you know, and and that's the only situation in which you would have the possibility of it being sustainable, right? Because these insular communities, yeah, they're they're kind of hells as mm-hmm. far as I understand. But you know, um, if everyone is living this way, then suddenly you can you can circulate among these different things. If you don't like the people you're with, you don't have to stay there. <laughs> right. um, and and a lot of the pressure is, um, you know, is is taken away. Uh, and people can more easily find their 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 place in a world like that. Mm. So you know that that's the vision I have is that in you know in um, a crisis brought about by you know by the kinds of uh, developments within capitalism itself, um, its tendency to kind of eject people from labor to to make them poorer and poorer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We see that happening, um, or kind of ecological crisis. Um, disruptions to the food supply, right. um, disruptions to um, other kinds of infrastructures. People will be forced to mm-hmm. um, to kind of band together to work for these kinds of things, and that that will spread and, mm-hmm. and be a kind of rupture within the system. Um, I, I, you know, every revolution sort of happens in a moment of crisis, whether right. it's economic crisis or war um, or some sort of you know, um, disruptive event. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So well, it's, yeah, it can't be purely, you know, purely voluntary. <laughs> we're just not going to make it happen by, like you no, said, well, I mean, all of a sudden be, I'm going to start it would be teaching nice. a class. It would be and, nice yeah. if someone could just come up with the right thing to say to people that's going to convince them to, right. to, to change their ways of life. But no, nobody's going to yeah, do that, yeah, right? I mean, people right. are, that's not, that's not how human beings work. Right, right. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is Capital's Art of War, about the logistics of the supply chain. And our guest is Jasper Burns, one of the organizers of Occupy Oakland, a poet and Marxist theorist, 
author of The Work of Art in the Age of Deindustrialization. So we're in a place that I think we are moving very quickly into the, some of those situations. And this is just in this country, which we imagine being some utopia itself, even though that's, of course, crazy. But it's what we see. Um, there are other situations that are more desperate, even, I suppose. And we're, we are furthering, I think, the cause, if, if, if that's what's happening, right? Furthering the opportunity, the potential for revolution. Even though I don't know what that means still, like revolution still has this tinging of, 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 of violence directed at, um, what, the owners, you know, violence directed at the system that is led by owners. I'm not sure what that means anymore. Mm. Um, but I do, it is easy for me to think in Thoreauvian terms, personally, because I grew up that way, right? Mm. I grew up in the country. And, and it's easy enough for me to, to see those things. To imagine Manhattan spilling out into the countryside mm -hmm. is a different sort of uh, conception. Um, so these things, again, I don't think that they're hard to think about. I think that, like, as you say, what happens in that, um, I guess, in that struggle mm -hmm. once things fall to pieces, right. it seems like that's what we have to talk about right. because that's, that's what many people now think is inevitable, mm -hmm. right? There's not right. only climate change, which will, will, wreak havoc on all of these systems that right. we're talking Absolutely. about, right? Energy systems, food systems, right. they're going to change. They have right. to change. And right. then what happens, right. right? Can the people who are in charge now continue to be in charge by force, you know, by whatever means they need to, or will they hold on long enough to kill so many people that there won't be a need for, there won't be revolution because there won't be revolutionaries anymore. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of people though. I mean, <laughs> I know. I know, there are a lot, lot of people, people on the planet. That's right. That's right. And, that's right. Um, and you know, and that's why, and that's why the violence question it's, you know, it's difficult. Of course, I don't, you know, want anyone, um, to, you know, to, to die or I don't want, you know, violence for the sake of violence um but you one has to recognize how violent the 21st century is going right, to be right. regardless you know what what is coming our way is going to kill so many people mm -hmm. that you really have to you really have to take that into account when you're talking about you know the dangers of violent revolution if it if it creates a situation in which people can actually meet their own needs and mm -hmm. and keep um climate change from uh, you know, starving uh, a billion people right. or, you know, causing the return of kind of massive pandemic diseases, right. um, things like that, then, you know, uh, it might be the, really the best road um, to have to deal with the problems of kind of civil war type right. um, revolutions. Right. Right. And, you know, and I don't know if it's going to look like, um, you know, those past revolutions that you mentioned, but, you know, I do think that, uh what you might see is a kind of a situation of the breakdown of political power. Mm -hmm. And in the breakdown of political power, um, people rise up against the regime of property. You know, they think they, they decide I no longer have to, um, respect the mm -hmm. fact that somebody has a slip of paper that says they are entitled to this resource and mm -hmm. I don't. And people begin to directly take it. And in that situation, they, they confront the police power of the state and the state is weakened at that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and there, and, and things go from there. Right. Um, of course, I think that it's the thing that's really important to say is that you know pure pure military power alone or violence is never going to um, succeed on its own in um, you know in producing a kind of new world. Uh, the most important part of it, even 
though there there probably has to be some some violence, even as you know defensive violence against counter revolution. Um, the most important part of it is is immediately creating um, you know a state of affairs that 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 people feel passionate about that's really meeting their needs for mm-hmm. a better life immediately, right? So, f- so for me, the positive element of it, like the fact that you know you you create these. Um, ways for people to like to grow and distribute food. You, um, you know, create ways for the people to get the kind of medicine that they need, um, the access to kind of electricity and the infrastructure that they need. That's what cements the success of the revolution. Mm-hmm. It's you know, and the past revolutions to me they fail because they focus on the military or the political question first, and they mm-hmm. sort of ignore. They ignore that materialistic question mm-hmm. of, you know, do people feel like their lives are getting better? Mm-hmm. If they don't, maybe people will maybe be generous for a year or two. <laughs> right. They'll give you a year or two to, to prove, yeah. uh, to, to, to improve their lives. But after that, they're, they're not going to right. uh, continue to go with you. So you have to immediately make people's lives better. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That, 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 and, and that's, you don't do that through military force. Mm-hmm. Um, you do that through, um, you know, through, through kind of changing the material arrangement right. of, of the, you know, the economy. This is our final break, and here's another from Andrew Hill, Smokestack, released in 1966 on Blue Note Records. When we return, we'll see just how fragile capital's mighty supply chain really is. Stay with us for more Interchange. I'm Doug Storm for Interchange. In our final segment with Jasper Burns, we'll focus on the fragility and brittleness of a supply chain that mobilizes Planet Factory. This interconnected world is far too entangled, and a disruption in communication can conceivably cripple the whole structure. And while possibly liberating, this is also frightening. We need to be ready. You know what? Uh, what has uh, I guess amazed me a little bit about the the work you did on logistics, which um, uh, which struck me that I hadn't really realized the um, how much it was a military metaphor, yeah, <laughs> and that it continues in that way. And but it struck me too that you know you 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 count it along with uh, you say there were two revolutions in the twenty second half of the twentieth century, mm-hmm. the Green Revolution and the Logistics Logistic, Revolution. Yeah. And so uh, maybe tell uh, talk a little bit about that if you don't mind, because I, I would like to talk about logistics as well, especially within the idea of of you know trying to understand 
you know, how we got to this place and how it seems that most of our, what I would think of as liberal or progressive politics is sort of bought into these, what you call counter revolutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, when, it, when we talk about the logistics revolution, um, it's closely bound up with what is sometimes called globalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, essentially this is a change in the structure of corporations and the way that corporations um, interact with each other, the kind of ecosystem, the global ecosystem of corporations, and it's a move toward to a model of production in which um, a good, like an automobile or a computer, is being made through these incredibly complex processes of um, global distribution. You know, where where the raw material is shipped from one part of the world to halfway around the world, then it's then it's turned into an intermediate um, input that's then shift halfway around the world again. Um, then, you know, those intermediate inputs coming from seven different places are joined in another part of the world, then they're assembled, and then they're finally, mm-hmm. um, you know, shipped to their final destination. And, and so that's the way that manufacturing happens in the world now. Um, whereas, you know, previously, while there's always been global trade, um, it was much more common for you know, a good to go through all the stages in a relatively um, confined region. Right. A completed good would be traded elsewhere. Yeah, or yeah. companies would be what you call vertically mm-hmm. organized, where they would control all parts of the supply chain, mm-hmm. right? They would control the, the supply chain from kind of raw material through intermediate up, input outputs. And um, But now um, corporate power has kind of shifted, in fact, to the retailer, companies like Walmart or Amazon. They have power over this kind of vast galaxy of suppliers and contractors that then, you know, produce goods and then contract with other producers to produce the things that they need, you know, and, and so on and, and so forth. Um, that means that the, the kind of networks of manufacturing are incredibly complex. And the reason why this happened is not because it's more efficient. And this is the myth mm-hmm. that I really want to dispel is this idea that, um, globalization has somehow produced a situation of greater efficiency. Um, It's simply not true. Um, The only way it's more efficient is that it's cheaper, Mm -hmm. right? If you measure it in money terms, you can make something for much cheaper. But the reason that it's cheaper is not because of the efficiencies of economies of scale, for instance. We know it's, you know, easier to make a thousand units in a factory than a hundred, right? Because you can can conserve and economize on things. But that's not what's going on with logistics. What's really going on is that um, producers are able to go all around the world searching at the cheapest possible labor, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and that's why these things cost less. It's not because they've made things more efficient. Mm-hmm. It's that um, they, you know, are able to uh, engage in what we might call wage arbitrage. Mm-hmm. They're seeking out the cheapest labor possible. Cheapest now, it's true. Too. It's true that, that what's enabled this is a series of efficiencies in the shipping industry, right? right? right. The in- invention of the container ship, which right. is, like, you know, is what made this all possible. And, of course, that's a much more efficient way to ship goods. So there are efficiencies, but these efficiencies are um, really enabling the cost savings to come from uh, labor and if you everybody was paid the same rate, it would it wouldn't be efficient in any way. And in and if you if you start ca- you know factoring in energy costs, mm-hmm. it's an incredibly wasteful way um, to do anything, and it makes no sense outside of capitalism. Right. It's insanity. Right. It's insanity to right. you know ship things back and forth across the world twenty times before right. it gets to the end um, consumer. 
Um, it also makes class struggle very difficult, right? Because um, nobody actually works for the company they're making something for. They work for a contractor, right? You know, Apple makes its goods through Foxconn that is then, you know, also has its own contractors. And so um, if there's a there's a problem with labor, they can very quickly shift to another right. um, source of labor. And they can move around the world and avoid the problems that labor once caused capital. Um, and so it's, logistics has been this powerful weapon mm -hmm. for the ruling class. Um, and it's part of why wages have been sent to the floor. Um, it's because, um, you know, if you do something they don't like, um, you can, they can just go somewhere else. The, the, the other thing, maybe the, the, the side of things that's bad for capital is that these networks are also potentially pretty, pretty brittle. Um, and so there are bottlenecks mm -hmm. um, in the circulation of goods because things are moving, moving through these kinds of um, channels all the time. There are places that if you block them, then um, uh, nobody's making any money. So the ports, for instance, become vitally important. Right. If you can shut down a port, you shut down all the flows of capital. Of course, you shut down the things that we depend upon to <laughs> live, um, but that there are possibilities for class struggle that emerge in this context that sort of shift from the site of production to the site of circulation. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is Capital's Art of War, about the logistics of the supply chain. And our guest is Jasper Burns, one of the organizers of Occupy Oakland, a poet and Marxist theorist, author of The Work of Art in the Age of Deindustrialization. Yes, like you're saying, you want to be able to shut down the port and, like, in a sense, cripple your own capacity to get what you wanted in the first place. Right. And then immediately, as you said before, have something in place to, re right. to, to replace right. it, right? That's, well, that, right. For, for, you know, in a revolutionary conjuncture, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, but, but just in the kinds of struggles we see, I do think that, that because this state of affairs has emerged in which um, there's been a disempowering of uh, proletarians. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not using the term working class because, you know, maybe not everybody is actually working in, right, this, sure. in this situation, but, but mm -hmm. people who don't have any resources, they don't have wealth, they don't own things, mm -hmm. um, and they're forced to either work or hustle in some way to, to survive. Um, they're disempowered at their workplace if they have a workplace, um, but maybe they're newly empowered in these areas of circulation. Um, because that's where, you know, that's where capital is most active. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the social movements over that we've seen over the last, you know, decade or so have increasingly focused on um, the scene of circulation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, Black Lives Matter, I think notoriously, you know, um, took up the freeway blockade as, mm -hmm. a, as, a, as a key tactic. Uh, you know, the, the Standing Rock no dapple struggle mm -hmm. was a blockade of circulation. Um, and, you know, there are numerous examples mm -hmm. from you know United States and Canada and all across the world of this kind of, you know, new age of, of, right. of blockades. It's a, it's a hard question because it's, it is easy to see the effect. It's easy to see how it might work on in a short term or in, as a way in which you uh, challenge particular uh, structures, right? So if you could challenge a, a local structure enough that the local political power changes or mm -hmm. makes decisions, that's a reformist attitude, I assume. Sure. But to imagine that uh, streaming onto the freeway and stopping traffic 
will create something other than antagonism towards you by the other people who live in that area and right. or uh, uh, an actual uh, perhaps violent response from the state as right. well. These are these are, you know, people who have already agreed that that it's worth that risk, you know, to mm-hmm. disrupt for the plausible uh, non-result, right? A plausible uh, negative result mm-hmm. uh, because there is nothing to gain out of it in some sense besides visibility often, sure. right? Well, right. It, it, there are different blockades and mm-hmm. different blockades have different effects. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some might be, as you say, um, primarily symbolic mm-hmm. in, in, in their action. Um, but I don't know that, you know, comparing that with the tactics of movements in the past is, you know, I think lots of things were more symbolic than that we might have thought them to be. I think, you know, strikes can also be s- somewhat symbolic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in, you know, in, in especially if they're done in a particular kind of way. It's not as if the workers' movement in its height, you know, did not engage in... Um, you know, kind of symbolic action. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not as if symbolic action isn't uh, meaningful in some way. Right. Um, The the point that I would make is that um, there are different blockades and some blockades are going to be more powerful than others, but movements have to learn, Mm -hmm. learn um, where to be effective Mm -hmm. and learn how to be effective. Um, And that's a process of kind of trial and error. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the freeway isn't the best thing to blockade, but maybe um, trying out that blockade is kind of preliminary Mm -hmm. that's necessary to to, um, engage in more effective Mm -hmm. blockades later on. And I think that every, you know, every movement, every kind of, uh, historical uh, movement has to go through that process of uh, of learning. Mm-hmm. So um, you know the port is more effective, and in, in, you know in Oakland when we shut down the port during mm-hmm. Occupy Oakland, um, that was obviously more effective. But it also has its limitations, and so one of the things we need to do is kind of figure out where we can be effective. Um, you know, you're probably never not going to piss people off <laughs> right, as you piss sure. off drivers, sure. um, <laughs> but you you know. You can, uh, you know, you can calculate the the ratio of pissed off people to <laughs> material effects, but those are those are sort of local questions, and mm-hmm. this is where this is where the question of kind of knowing what's around you is important, right? right. Do you know what people make in your area? Right. Do you know where the flows are? Mm-hmm. Do you know the infrastructure? Um, that exists where the, the, the trains come through. So, and people are becoming more focused in this way. You know, Olympia every year um, they engage in these um, uh, rail blockades of the trains that come through their town. Um, you know, heading to um, uh, to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that's an example of a very right. a very focused kind of blockade. Mm. Uh, and so I think you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna find a kind of focusing of these energies over the next decades. Mm-hmm. Well, it was I think that was the point that uh, that Joshua Clover made in terms yeah. of making a distinction between what could have been a useful strikes at one point where you were localized in labor and had yeah. power to having no power anywhere anymore yeah. as a as a labor a laboring class, and so you had to make a difference somehow. You were sort of the right. desperation of making a difference would be riot, as as his book. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. You know, and so people, people choose the tactics that are available to them. And sometimes, you know, they don't, there's nothing better available to them than, you know, streaming onto the freeway. And that's the best way to kind of make their power in in the world felt. Um, And I think that that, you know, can be a kind of powerful first step. We have Mm -hmm. to sort of, you know, work with what we have. Thank you.
That's our show. We'll close with Illusion off of Andrew Hill's 1975 compilation album, One for One. Our thanks to Jasper Burns for his detailed thinking on disruption, blockade, and what comes next if, perhaps, the supply chains of capitalism are broken. We must have a strong imagination to conceive of what comes next, and likely, a strong sense of collective hope to make something better than the economic and political organization that has culminated in Donald Trump. Next time on Interchange, suppressing the salt of the earth. In 1954, out of McCarthyism and the blacklist came a movie about unionization, labor solidarity, and the power of women. Salt of the Earth both illustrated what had already been lost with the totalitizing economic domination of war, delivering prosperity dripping blood, and what might still be found in the liberation struggles of the long decade of the 1960s. Suppressing the Salt of the Earth. Next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon edited and mixed today's program. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.